Song of Solomon, chapter 2. We are continuing our way through this book of poetry. As we've seen, this is a song. It is lyrical. It is artistic. It's an expression of love between a man and a woman, between a shepherd king and his now bride-to-be. Their love is described in various stages throughout the book. We're still in the engagement phase. They have not yet been married, but they long to be. They're anticipating. They're looking forward to it. They want to see that day. They know it is yet to come, but it hasn't arrived yet, and in that way, they're much like us. We are, as the church, the bride of Christ. Our love has been pledged to him. Our, our wedding day, as it were, still awaits us, though. We await the final consummation. So tonight in our text, we'll continue to see that the author is using the various senses of the body, you know, taste and touch and sight, to teach us about love. That's why this is part two of a little section of sermons called Love and the Senses. This poetry is intentionally evocative. It is meant to not merely engage your mind. It's meant to engage more than that. It's meant to affect us at a deeper level than mere head knowledge. It's, it's aiming to stir the heart at moving you at the affectional level. And that's, that's what we'll see tonight. The scene involves a back and forth between the bride-to-be and her beloved king. But, but let's start by reading. I'm going to begin back in chapter 1, verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are pine. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray. Father, we gather among your people on your day to sit under the teaching of your word, to Dine at your table, and all of it will be in vain if you do not send your spirit. And so we pray that you would be near to us, that you would open our eyes afresh to see the glory of Christ as he is pictured even in this beautiful poetry. We ask this in his name. Amen. Last time we looked at verses 12 to 15 in chapter 1, and we discussed how each of us smells. I wasn't speaking about the odor that we emit, though that may be true of some of you. Rather, we spoke about the language that Paul used, that where we go as Christians, we're supposed to emit the aroma of Christ. 
We should smell like our Savior. We should have a fragrant aroma that's fitting for those who delight in the beauty of Christ and possess His Spirit. And then we moved on to the next sense, the sense of sight in verse 15 of chapter 1. We saw the two lovers back and forth, bantering, praising one another for their appearance. There was a a playfulness, a reciprocity between their words. Indeed, that's where we'll pick up tonight with the sense of sight. I'll begin by looking closely at verse 1 in chapter 2 because that's where a bit of controversy begins. And to explain the controversy, let me explain a few things about the text. So verse 1 says, I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This verse has been interpreted in two main ways. And the question centers upon who's speaking? Who is saying, I'm the lily of the valley? Um, If you notice in your Bible, you'll see likely these little subheadings that say he or she or others or... Those were not inspired, not in the original text. Those are the best guesses by the scribes and the translators as to exactly who's speaking where. And sometimes it's very clear grammatically. Someone's speaking in the feminine, and so we know that's the woman, and and so on. But grammatically, there's not a lot of help in verse 2. Now, historically, the majority position in church history is that verse 1 is the king speaking. He's saying of himself, I am the rose of Sharon. I am the lily of the valleys. He's using theologically significant language to describe his preeminence. He's the greatest of all mankind. He's a rose unparalleled for its beauty of Sharon, which is a valley, a vast valley known for its immense and lush wildflowers. And so the lily language is picked up like we read in Psalm 45, a messianic psalm to describe the coming of the Messiah. And Sharon is picked up in Isaiah 35, and it's used to describe the the glorious coming state, either the millennium or the final state, depending on how you sort out the end times. And so for all those reasons, largely drawn outside of the book, interpreters take verse 1 to be spoken of by the king, and therefore pointing to the great coming king, Christ, and his preeminence among all other men. This was the view of the early church fathers. The Reformers, the Puritans, Charles Spurgeon, basically everyone I could find before 1900. Some of you might even remember singing an old hymn called The Lily of the Valley. I've found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. The Lily of the Valley. In Him alone I see all I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. Now the second view of this verse instead sees verse 1 being spoken of by the woman. And rather than highlighting her preeminence as the best rose there is, she's actually stating the opposite. She's saying, I'm like one rose amidst a whole ocean of roses in a giant valley of wildflowers. I'm actually nothing special. I'm a dime a dozen. And she's speaking in a self-deprecating way, rather than the opposite interpretation that says, I am the greatest. And this is the view that has been promoted by most commentators in the last hundred years. And in favor of this view is that, well, the self-deprecating language, we've already read in chapter 1. She's already said, I'm dark, don't look at me, I'm not lovely. And so it's consistent with how she's already been speaking in this very passage. But the second verse, or a second point to interpret it this way is that 
the rest of the book. Nowhere else in the rest of the book have I found the king to be praising himself. He's praising his beloved. He's praising their love. But he's never saying, look at how great I am. Look at how lovely and preeminent I am. His attention is always focused on the loveliness of his bride and the beauty of their love together. And so for those reasons, I find myself in the very unusual position of choosing the interpretation that the moderns take over the majority position in church history. And those of you who know me must know how conflicted I am in this moment. And yet the text of this book, this book, I think we weight heavier the closer contextual clues than the things outside of this book. And so for that reason, I, I'm, I'm led to tentatively conclude that it's the woman speaking in verse 1. And yet, like we've seen throughout this passage already, the banter between the two lovers is connected. They play off of each, one, each other's words. The, the bride might be saying of herself, I'm nothing special. I'm, I'm one pretty flower among thousands of others. But the bridegroom doesn't see it that way, does he? Look at verse 2. He picks up the same language from verse 1, and he describes how he sees his bride. He says, no, you think you're just one lily among a, a valley of lilies? No, as a lily among brambles or, or thorns or thickets, so is my love among the young women. You may be a single flower, my love, but to me... You're a beautiful wildflower, and all the others are like thorns compared to you. I have eyes for you. You may feel a dime a dozen, but you're priceless to me. You're the apple of my eye. Your, your beauty makes all others fade. He's affirming his singular devotion to his bride. And we ought to have the same feelings about the spouse that God has given to us. I mean, husbands, does, do our wives know that our devotion is singularly focused on her. The way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we address her, the way that we embrace her, do all these things convince her that your gaze is singularly focused on her and that she is one of a beautiful rose among thorns? The same question could be asked of wives too. Does your husband know that you find him singularly delightful and lovely? See, we have, to, we have to resist the temptations to comparison, which can inevitably creep in if we're not careful. We don't need to compare our spouse to others in a way that undermines our devotion to our spouse. Train yourself to focus on them alone. Consider their strengths, for example, the things they do well. And let that stir up gratitude within you to God for the gifts that He's given to your spouse the things that they excel at, the, the ways that they've grown, the way that they have improved. And see, too often we, we fixate on the failures, the things they don't do so well, their weaknesses. And to do that, it's, it's very easy to fixate on it in a way that undermines our devotion to them. We compare them to others, wishing that they would be more like someone else. I know you're a rose, honey, but man, look at the color of the petals on that rose over there. Look at the size of that, that bush over there, that garden. We can foster feelings within us of discontentment towards our spouse that undermines marital joy and is unfair. It's unloving to 
the spouse. We're called to delight in the spouse that God has given to us. Seek their good. Praise them when you see spiritual fruit. Promote their good by encouraging piety. Yes, confront them when necessary, remembering their good the whole time, but not confronting them out of discontentment or irritation with them. This kind of disposition takes intentionality. It even takes faith. Because each of us knows that the spouse that we've been given does not measure up with what we see in the book. And yet, driven by love, we're called to pursue their good. And why do we do that? Because that's exactly what Christ has done. It's what He's done with His bride. He doesn't fixate on the negative. He doesn't chastise with a rod. He delights in her beauty. He praises her. He washes her with the water of the Word so that she might be without spot or blemish. He doesn't see us as a, some disdainful, weak vessel. He sees believers, the church, and you individually believers as lovely. He's, he's remade you and, and washed you and made you clean. He's robed you with His righteousness and His loveliness, and He's not frustrated with you. He's not disappointed. And when you fail, he's, he's quick to forgive. We saw this morning, he takes your sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? How far away is east and west? What does that mean? It means he's removed the stain of your sin and cast it eternally away. He's saying he doesn't regret saving you. It's as if he's saying, I don't even remember those things that they did against me. That's good news. That, that permits him to focus on your beauty now without being distracted by the things you've done in the past. That's how he looks at you. And when we remember that, it stirs love within our hearts and it gives us the strength to love someone else who is less than lovely sometimes. And so train yourself, to train your heart to love your spouse well and to love with a love like Christ has that's quick to forgive, eager to embrace again. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Well, let's move on to the next little section in our text. The, the woman again speaks and she praises her beloved king. She moves to a new kind of imagery though, trees and forests. She says in verse 3 of chapter 2, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest... So is my beloved among the young men. So just like the king was praising the beauty of the woman as if she was one rose and everything else was just thorns, so the woman is extolling the preeminent beauty of her man. She says, if all the men around me were, were like trees in the forest, my king is like a fruitful, bountiful apple tree among them. He's the best of the best. His fruit and his alone sustains me. She says, with great delight I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. That, that phrase there, she's able to sit with great delight in his shadow. Husbands are, are meant to provide like a, a refreshing shade for their wives. Imagine you're, you're back in their day. You're like the woman that we read in chapter 1 who has been forced to work in the vineyards. She's She's been enslaved by her brothers to go and do work that she doesn't really enjoy. And she's been slaving at it all day. She's 
and, and you, like her, are under the scorching sun. You're exhausted. You're tired. Your throat is parched. And then when the job's over, guess what? You have to walk home. You can't hop in the car and fire up the AC. It's a long day of exhausting work, and you still have the hike back to the house. You want shade. You want refreshment. You want some rest, some, some respite. I'm sure we've all been in that place, physically, but especially spiritually, maybe even emotionally. You just want a break. You just need to be refreshed. And husbands are meant to provide that for their wives, a bit of relief from the pressure of this world, a bit of refreshment, a bit of rejuvenating encouragement, a bit of rest. And so husbands, would your wives say that you do that for them? Do you provide a place of safety and refuge, a bit of shade under which they can find some relief? I often speak with women who long for that, crave for that in their marriage. But instead, they feel like their husband is more like a scorching sun rather than a refreshing shade. They have harsh words. They crush the soul of the woman. And when they don't have those, they have neglectful coldness and they withdraw. And that too weighs upon the woman. The man never seems satisfied, never encourages, never feeds. He's never refreshing. And wives, the love pictured in this text should cause you to pause as well. Are you willing to rest under the shade of your husband? See, the bride here chooses to sit. She's got all the trees in the forest, and she's willingly sitting beneath one tree and seeking to delight in it. She doesn't disdain the apple tree because it's shorter than the pines and the oaks in the forest. She isn't critical of the, the size of the fruit or the volume of the tree's productions. See, sometimes wives are tempted to see the fruit tree that they've been given and to lament that their tree doesn't look like all the other trees. They look around at other trees in the forest and they're discontent. But God has given you the tree that He thinks that you should have. And so don't reject God's good gift of a faithful husband. Of course, He's not perfect, but then I've never met a perfect wife either. Husbands and wives should labor to promote feelings of genuine gratitude and love for the gift of their spouse, overlooking sin wherever possible, humbly correcting sin when necessary, but seeking to have the kind of relationship pictured in this text. The king produced a delightful shade, and the woman delighted in it. But it wasn't merely his shade that was delightful to her. Let's see the poetry switch to the next sense, and that's the sense of taste. The sense of taste, he says, with great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The king bears a, a fruitfulness through his shade tree. The language of trees and fruit is highly reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. It's the same kind of language. Remember there where Adam and Eve were given all manners of trees and Fruit. They didn't have to slave and toil to get the food. The creation gave of its bounty to them. They had plenty of fruit for them to eat. 
And there was rest. There was no sin. There was no weariness and toil. They had everything they could ever desire. But they were not content. They were told not to eat of one tree. Just one. Do you remember what the text says about Eve looking at the tree? She said she saw... The text says, when she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, she took of the fruit and ate it. She was not content to delight in what was given to her. Instead, she was tempted to delight in something forbidden. And so in Scripture, we see often that tasting and delighting go hand in hand. The same temptation is warned against in the book of Proverbs, where marital infidelity is again pictured in terms of tasting and delighting. Proverbs 5 says, The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. And she tells to the young man in chapter 7, Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. The taste of honey and delight, all promised by forbidden love. Satan knows that marital love ought to be a delightful experience, sweet to the taste, and so he knows what to promise in order to lure us in. He wants us to experience delight. Satan really wants you to taste of sensual bliss. He wants you to do that. He just doesn't want you to do it within the bounds of a covenanted marriage. He started with that tactic in the garden, and it still works today, so why would he change it? He tempts us to be discontent with what God's given to us and urges us to find delight and sweet taste elsewhere. He doesn't want us eating from our own tree, the tree given to us. He wants us to take and eat from the forbidden tree. And we mustn't give in. We mustn't let our minds wander down that path. Don't go near the door of the forbidden woman. Don't even let your feet go near the path to her house, Proverbs says. Don't don't entertain thoughts of what it would be like if your spouse was just like this or like that, or if, even worse, wonder what it would be like to be married to this person. What would that be like? It's dangerous. Guard your eyes, likewise, from forbidden fruit. Don't put before your gaze temptations. You know what your temptations are. Is it is it something on a screen? Is it something you read? Is it your own imagination? Don't let that stew in your brain. Don't let it undermine your marital faithfulness and your contentment. We have to be on guard. The tempter is at work, and I'm telling you how he works in this realm. Scripture tells us. We don't have to be ignorant about what Satan's going to do. He's going to offer you something that looks delightful on the surface, and then it has a hook in it. What does Proverbs 5 says? It says the the, the adulterous woman, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead to the path of Sheol. Just like Adam and Eve who tasted fruit that falsely promised delight, they went to death. Proverbs continues, With much seductive speech, she persuades the young man to come in, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter or a stag caught fast in a trap. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Death. That's the hook. 
Death is what awaits someone who gives themselves over to lust. That hook of death is concealed by the bait of promised delight and joy. But it never pans out. And each of us has experienced this. In fact, none of us was born inclined towards faithfulness. We've we've all tasted some forbidden fruit. We've all earned death for ourselves. And that's the amazing love that we see in the cross. Because even though Christ's bride chose to steal what didn't belong to her, even though the church collectively and each of us individually chose to snatch what wasn't ours and to try and taste the delight, Christ went down to the grave in our place. He took the punishment of death that was earned by His bride. Even even though we all fell for the adulterer's lies, we soiled ourselves with sin, Christ took all that away by taking it on Himself. That's the great exchange of the gospel. You see, by by one tree in the garden, sin and death entered the world, and by another tree, it gets undone. By a tree in Eden came our sentence, but by Christ's death on a tree comes its reversal. And so remember Christ's work on the cross and His forgiveness, and let that stir within you renewed zeal to forsake all other trees in the forest, all other false lovers, Let His faithfulness spur you on in faithfulness to Him. And then from there, you can pursue faithfulness to your earthly spouse. And if you haven't tasted of Christ yet, if you haven't found delight, if you're still looking, or if your heart is still longing for that kind of taste of desire, then I urge you to consider Him tonight. Scripture tells you, taste and see that the Lord your God is good. No other spouse can provide you the faithfulness that He provides. No other other lover in this world could provide you the delightful shade that He provides. Consider the refreshing shade, if you will, of Christ. If you're tired, if your soul is weary, if you're tired of slaving in the vineyard of this world, Christ offers you rest. If you're anxious... Your mind is racing. You're worried about something. Your thoughts are consumed about situations that you can't control and yet you can't let them go. He promises to care for you, to work things all together for your good. Not merely to work them out. To work them out to where you are better off for having gone through that than if He had never led you through it in the first place. If you're fearful... You feel vulnerable, exposed. Christ is the rock of refuge. He's a strength for His beloved. He will protect you just like God protected Moses in the cleft of the rock. If you're feeling ashamed, you've sinned, you're you're dirty, your conscience is defiled, Christ promises to wash you, to make you clean, to clothe you, just like He did Adam and Eve. When they were naked and ashamed in the garden, He covered them. But the covering you get is much better than an animal skin. It's His own righteousness. When you're feeling parched and dry, you've been slaving out in the world, and you can't find the satisfaction that you're pursuing. It continues to elude you. There's something that's missing, and you can't find contentment. Christ promises the water of life and says that he that drinks of it will never thirst again. 
delight, satisfaction, contentment, joy can only be found in Christ. And as we cling closely to Christ, we can taste true delight. Verse 4, He brought me to His banqueting house, and His banner over me was love. He brings His beloved in, not out in the scorching heat, not out in the cold, brings her in to a house of feasting. Literally, a house of wine is what the text says. And so rather than barrenness, He brings us into bounty. Rather than being parched by sin, we're quenched by His wine. And so we can say, with this bride, our cup overflows. That should be our desire, to find our satisfaction in no other person. And we can say with the woman, verse 5, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. We have a taste that cannot be quenched by any other. Let that be your prayer. Let my taste be for no other. Let Christ alone sustain me. Let my love for Him be so strong, I'm almost drunk with His love. Only then could we ever find true delight in an earthly spouse. Even the best earthly marriages cannot satisfy a longing that we all have in our souls for delight. Only Christ can. And Christ is enough. Even for those that are suffering in unhealthy marriages. Christ can sustain you. And for our singles here, communion with Christ is enough to sustain us through the loneliness we might experience as we walk through this world. He is enough. And our experience of Him is like a warm embrace. Verse 6, His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Even when we feel alone, Christ's love can sustain us. He's never far from us, even if our feelings tell us otherwise. His gifts are near. His his fruit is near. His love is near. He's brought us to His banqueting table, and His banner over you is love. And that's where we'll, we'll land this week, at His banqueting table. Christ has given to His beloved a seat at His feasting table. When we're walking through this world and we're like the Hebrews wandering in the desert, waiting our promised land, when we feel parched and dry, Christ has provided a meal. And it's a meal better than quail and manna. A meal that symbolizes His own body and blood to remind us of the sacrifice that He has made in order to sustain His bride along the way. What awaits us is eventually a heavenly table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until that day, we have a foretaste, a meal of anticipation, looking forward, a meal of reminder, looking backwards, a meal of remembrance, remembering our shepherd king, and a meal of participation where we participate with him, we fellowship with him, we commune with him. It's a token of his love to remind us and to provide for us shade that our weary souls need along the journey. If you're trusting in Christ, then taste of this meal from your bridegroom and delight in his provision. If you're like the believers in Acts 2 or devoted to God's word and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then your bridegroom says, come, take and eat. 
But if you're not trusting in Christ, first go to Him. Find rest and delight in His shade. Believing in what He says of Himself in His own Word, and then you can join us at the table. I'll pray, and then we'll process down the middle aisle, get the elements up front, and return to our seats along the edges. We'll also have um, somebody to walk around with a plate. John, if you could help with that. Um, We'll have somebody bring the elements around for people who need to remain in their seat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us of our faithful bridegroom. How though we have soiled our garments with sin, he has washed us by the power of his word to make us clean and pure. And he's given us a reminder, a meal, a token of his love to sustain us along the way. I pray that these elements would edify the body, that you would build up your church, that you would preserve us to the very end as you have promised to do. In Christ's name, amen.